Good morning. Cool. Is that working? Awesome. We're on a new mic setup this morning, so that's, uh, it works well so far. Daniel chapter 9. If you were here last week, you'll remember that we began a two-part uh, series on prayer, and uh, we're looking at the example of prayer with the person of Daniel. And so we find his prayer in Daniel chapter 9. And with this message, we'll close out our series on authentic church. And next Sunday, as I've told you many times, we will begin our study in Ephesians. And you'll recall, last week we pulled three elements from Daniel's prayer. And we looked at the first few verses of Daniel chapter 9, and we said prayer needs to be Scripture-driven. And we see Daniel looking in the books, namely Jeremiah. And we said prayer needs to be in accordance with God's will. And we said that that was the same thing that our Lord mentioned in Matthew chapter 6 when he gave us what we would call the Lord's Prayer. He said prayer needs to be aligned with the will of God. And thirdly, we said prayer needs to be sincere. And we see Daniel here coming before the Lord in sackcloth and ashes with fasting and pleas for mercy. And it is actually this morning, we will begin at verse 4, you will actually begin the prayer. If if we wanted to divide it this way, we could. Last week was the preparation for prayer. Last week was the preparation for prayer, and this week we may call the pattern of prayer. And so Daniel begins his prayer in verse 4, and he will be continuing to pray until verse 20, and we will get all the way there this morning. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord God and made confession, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. And it is there we see the first mark of Daniel's prayer. We will call it adoration. Adoration. True prayer is a prayer that adores God. Look at what Daniel says. O Lord, the great and awesome God. That is dealing with God's character, God's holy character. And he begins his prayer by reminding himself of who God is. He is great. He is awesome. It's it's like in Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And like Daniel, Jeremiah begins with the perfect and holy character of God. He begins in adoration. And so our prayers likewise should begin with recognizing who God is. Our prayer begins where Daniel begins. Not on ourselves, not on our situations, not on our difficulties, not even on our blessings, but with the very character, the very nature of the One to whom we pray. Lord, we recognize Your awesome power. We see this in God the Creator. God. That is who He is, and so it is right for us to pray, O Lord, how You have made the heavens and the earth, the mountains and the oceans to cry out to show us Your greatness. And we could pray to Him and praise Him for His providential nature. 
God's providence is simply His working all matters in being to His desired results. This is part of who God is. This is part of His character, His greatness, His awesomeness. And we see that, we see God doing that throughout history. He Himself provided the ram for Abraham's sacrifice. Perhaps the two most well-known examples of God's providence is how God provided for Israel through Joseph in Egypt. And we have discussed that in Sunday school, haven't we? And how God providentially arranged a fish to swallow the prophet Jonah. And we know those stories well, so I won't dwell on them here this morning, but that is God's providence. That the great and awesome God works all things together over history for His will and His glory. And it is in recognition of this that Daniel begins his prayer. Lord, how great You are. Lord, how awesome You are. It is because of His nature, His omnipotence, His perfection, that He works in the affairs of men to bring about what He wills. So we can pray to God for His creation. We can pray for, to God for His providence. And thirdly, His sovereignty. This is God. God's sovereignty refers to the fact that God is the supreme being in the universe. The absolute authority over every single thing. Everything and everybody on earth is subjected to God. It is He that brings kingdoms into power. It is He that causes kings to rise and fall. Because He Himself is the great King, Psalm 104. It is He that reigns over all the earth, Psalm 47.2. And it is He who will judge all the nations, Isaiah chapter 2. This is God's sovereignty. God being the absolute supreme being in the universe. And it is that in which Daniel begins his prayer. Lord, You are great. Lord, You are awesome. That's why in Philippians, in reference to Jesus Christ, Paul says that God made Him Lord. You'll remember it says that He came down as a servant, became obedient unto death, and God bestowed upon Him a name that is above every name. Lord. You don't make Jesus Lord of your life. He is Lord of your life. By nature of His sovereignty, He is Lord of your life whether you love Him or hate Him. He is Lord of everything. That is what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. And so prayer begins with God's very character. God's very nature becomes the basis on which Daniel prays. In fact, it is a theme throughout this prayer. And we will kind of zoom in, if you will, on verse 4. Notice how this language is used throughout the prayer of Daniel. Verse, not, verse 7, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. The Lord is righteous. Verse 9, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is forgiving. Verse 15, 
You, Lord, brought your people out of Egypt. You have made a name for yourself. This ascription to the very character of God. This adoring nature is the dominant theme throughout Daniel's prayer. There is a second adoration in this verse. The first dealt with the character of God, and we just spent some time discussing that. The second deals with the works of God. And we saw it referenced in verse 15. You brought your people out of Egypt. And in verse 4, after praising God, saying, Oh God, you are great. Oh God, you are awesome. Daniel says at the end of verse 4, Who keeps covenants and who keeps steadfast love. You are a trustworthy God. And what Daniel is saying is you are a God who keeps His Word. You are a God who when He makes a covenant with a people will be faithful to keep that covenant. Daniel here is no doubt recalling much of Israel's history. How God called Abraham out of a life of pagan religion and idolatry and promised him descendants as numerous as the sands on the seashore. How God brought His people out of Egypt. How God brought them into the land that He had promised them generations earlier. This would have been very relevant to Daniel, who is an old man, as I told you last week, sitting in exile. Been in exile for the majority of his adult life, and he is not taking it to God, and he is not bitter with God. He's not saying, God, I wasn't part of the disobedient and rebellious generation. Why am I in exile? He says, no, God, you are a trustworthy God. You are a covenant-keeping God. And if you'll remember last week, what does Daniel realize in verses 2 and 3? That the 70 years that the Jews were to be in exile in Babylon is almost up. And so as Daniel begins his prayer, he prays the very nature of God to God based on what he had just read. And he says, God, you are faithful. You keep covenant. And as he is praying that, he is reading the very covenant of God that they are to be freed in just a few short years. And so he is recounting some of Israel's History. It's probable that he was recounting some of the events of his own life. Just put yourself in Daniel's shoes for a moment. He is praying. He is adoring God for His greatness, His faithfulness. This is a man who was in a den of lions. This is a man who has seen much in his life. And as he comes to the end of his life, he is so overwhelmed with the greatness of God and God showing His faithfulness to Daniel over the course of his life that his prayer begins with adoring the very nature of God and the things that He he has done. And so like Daniel, we need to be looking back at our lives. How God has spared us from various things. How He has delivered us. And above all, how He has saved us from sin. Ephesians 2 says, We were born in sin and iniquity, children of wrath going along with the system of the world. And God graciously sent His Son and saved a people for Himself. He is, he is a delivering God. He is a covenant-keeping God. He is a faithful 
God, and it is these things that motivate Daniel to be constant in prayer to Him. And so our prayers need to be prayers of adoration. They need to be prayers for who God is and what He has done. Secondly, our prayers need to be confessional. They need to be in adoration. They need to be also in confession. And I think you could make the argument that this is the dominant theme of Daniel's prayer. In fact, it takes you from verse 5 right through into verse 15. The main thrust of Daniel's prayer is confessional. And I want to point out to you two types of confession. Verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. And that is the first type of confession. Lord, You have given us clear rules and we have disobeyed them. Lord, You have given us Your Word, Your instructions, Your guide to life, and we have not heeded it. That is Daniel's first confession. Lord, You have made rules and we have not obeyed. But notice what he says in verse 6. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. That's the second type of confession. Lord, when you sent people to warn us, we ignored them too. Lord, we ignored you. You have given us laws to the Jewish people. He gave them laws through Moses. And Daniel is saying, we did not heed your laws. And when you sent prophets, we hated them. And those are the two types of confession that you can find throughout this entire 10 verse section. As I told you, verses 5 to 15. And if you know the Jewish history, you'll know their treatment of prophets was not great. In fact, it had gotten so bad, by the time Jesus comes along, you'll remember just before He dies, He gives the parable of the vineyard. And You'll remember it's the one parable that the Pharisees understood. And you'll remember the vineyard owner sends servants and they are constantly killed. And this was to represent how Israel had treated the prophets. They were despised, put in exile, hated, and sometimes killed. And so the main thrust of Daniel's prayers follows these two confessions. And I want to ask the question this morning, why was Daniel so aware of his sin? Why was Daniel so aware of his sin? He was just made aware through the Scriptures of who God is. And as soon as he began to see who God was, His holiness, His perfection, His power, His wisdom, everything about God and what He has done, suddenly Daniel was made immediately aware of his wretchedness before a holy God. It's not unlike Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah here is confronted with God's glory. And do you remember Isaiah's response? Isaiah 6 verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. His response is to pronounce a curse on himself. And he immediately recognizes 
not only his personal sin, but also the sin of the nation before their God. In Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John sees a vision of the risen Christ and he falls down as though a dead man. This is John the Apostle, who when he was 17 was personally called by the Lord Jesus Christ, would have walked with him, would have talked with him. In fact, we know at the Last Supper he was leaning against Jesus with his head on his shoulder as it were, and here he sees him in his glorified form and he can't even stand up, he falls down. See, the closer we get to God, the more we see God, we become all too aware of who we are. You'll remember even Peter, when he was confronted with Jesus' deity, what did he do? In, in fact, turn with me, if you would, to Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We'll begin at the, uh, the beginning of the chapter. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. But when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon, who is Peter, answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. Verse 7. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And when they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. See, Peter here is confronted with Jesus' deity. He sees that Jesus is God, for who else could have caused them to catch such a large number of fish? And in Peter, seeing Jesus as God, immediately is hit with his own sin. And he says, depart from me, I am a sinful man. And please notice that in each of these cases, Daniel's included, these people did not sit down and say, okay, I'm going to pray for what I've done wrong today. They didn't go and make a list of their recent sins or vices and say, I need to take these to the Lord and perhaps the, that little exercise of writing a list of, of some of the things that you can bring to the Lord in repentance and confession is a helpful thing. There's a place for that. But the point this morning is that these people didn't try to do that. If your prayers are not marked by confession, the problem is not that you need a little activity to go and do. It'll just ask God to reveal your sin, write the list, now read the list back to God, now go home. That's not the problem. None of these people wanted to talk about their sin that day. They became immediately confronted with their sinful reality when they saw Jesus Christ. If your prayers are not marked by confession, it does not stem from the fact that you did or didn't make a list. The root problem is not even that you need to understand prayer better. 
You do need to understand prayer better, but that's a symptom, not a problem. The real cause, if your prayers are not marked by confession, is that you don't understand God well enough. None of these guys, Peter, John, Isaiah, Daniel, had premeditated sharing sessions planned. This was their natural response to seeing God. This was reaction. Peter sees Christ and is instantly confronted with his sin. If we truly knew who God was, if we were truly interacting with the very character of God as Daniel is here in his prayer, the natural and unavoidable response is to start confessing our sins to Him. Because we become so aware that we are unfit even to be in His presence. And you say, well, wasn't Daniel better than that? Wasn't Daniel a righteous man? You told us last week Daniel was noble and courageous and faithful and a man of truth and a man of dignity. And the answer is yes. Daniel was righteous. This is a man who would rather face lions than alter his prayer life. He was righteous. He was incredibly righteous. This is a man who's been faithful to God despite being in exile in a pagan nation all his life. And I'm ashamed to admit it, but if Daniel were here this morning, he would put me to shame. And you say, well, how can Daniel be so righteous and yet have so much to confess? It is ten verses of the 15-verse prayer. Isn't it true that as you mature and grow as a Christian, you sin less and less? Isn't it true that as you are saturated by the Word of God, the very mind of Christ, as Paul would say in Colossians, as you mature, aren't you supposed to sin less? And the answer is yes. You do sin less and less as you mature in Christ, but also as you mature in Christ, you become more and more aware of your sin. You sin less and feel worse for it. And it is so, it is precisely because Daniel is so righteous that he has so much confession. He is all too aware of his standing before a holy God. True prayer is marked by confession. And so our prayers need to begin with adoration, they need to have confession. And I will say, perhaps as an aside here, During this whole time of confession, you can read the 10 verses, 5 to 15. Notice how many times Daniel identifies with the larger Jewish nation. His prayers, his petitions are not deeply personal to him. By and large, his prayers associate with the people of God. The sins of the nation he takes on his own. The sins of the priests he identifies with. The rebelliousness at large of the people, the Jewish people, Daniel identifies with the other people of God. And there is a helpful reminder in that for us. Prayer is to tap into something larger than ourselves. We pray for the church as a whole. We pray for God to deal with His whole people mercifully, not just us. And so we need to identify with God's people when we come before God. We need to be praying for the whole church. 
Use Lord, Lord, use me within the context of the church. Don't do anything through me that would be a hindrance to the church at large. There is a camaraderie here on Daniel's part. It would have been very tempting for him to look at Israel and to see himself as better. He has been faithful. He is a specially appointed prophet. And he could have said, the rest of the nation just doesn't get it. He would have been right. But he doesn't do that. He confesses his own sin and yet sees himself as part of the larger body of God's people. There is no room for self-righteousness in fervent prayer. Let me say that again. There is no room for self-righteousness in true fervent prayer. And you have to criticize error. And you have to preach the truth. And you can never compromise that. And Daniel knows that well. I mean, he is no pushover. To defend the veracity and sufficiency of Scripture when it is attacked, this is what we are called to do. But when it comes to the intercessory work, the nature of prayer, we embrace God's people. The whole of God's people. And we identify with God's people. We talked about it a few weeks ago, being in a fellowship. We are blessed together and we are cursed together. But as God's people, as the body of Christ, we are something bigger than ourselves. And it is an important aspect to remember in prayer. And so our personal wants, our personal needs get stomped out, as it were. Our our list of wants gets indefinitely put on hold for the betterment of the kingdom. Our desires get cancelled for what God would do for God's kingdom. Lord, don't do what is best for me. Rather, use me for your kingdom. Do what is best for your kingdom. Our own personal wishes need to fall away to give rise for the betterment of God's church. So true prayer begins in adoration. True prayer is marked by confession. And lastly, verses 16-19, through true prayer is for God's glory. We'll pick it up in verse 16. O Lord, according to all Your righteous acts, Let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations. The city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by Your name. And you can see clearly the emphasis here on Daniel's heart and mind. It is about God. 
It is not about him or what Daniel wants or what Daniel desires or what Daniel thinks or what Daniel needs. The emphasis is solely on God's name, God's people, God's city. In fact, this whole thing started with the promises of God, didn't it? Right back in verse 2, it is the promise of God and we come full circle and the emphasis is still solely on God, on God's glory. How different sometimes are our prayers. Notice that in this whole section, the only time Daniel uses personal pronouns is in reference to his own sin. Prayers today are often characterized by what God can do for me. Sometimes dreadfully they are even advertised as that. Biblical prayer has a purpose. And that purpose is God's glory. Daniel makes it very clear. His concern is God's reputation. God's name. God's people. God's glory. God's city. The list goes on. And we have to understand as Christians that everything in our lives, in fact, everything in all lives, is for God's glory. And we need a more... God-centered prayer life and a much, much less man-centered one. And I told you last week, rather briefly, that God does everything for His own glory. And let me just close with a brief sampling of that. God's primary zeal is for His own glory. And our zeal, both in our lives and our prayer, needs to be for His glory as well. That's why in Isaiah 48, God says, For My name's sake, I defer My anger. For the sake of My praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For My own sake, For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God chose a people for Himself for His own glory. Ephesians 1. God created us for His glory. Isaiah 43. God called His people out of Egypt. Isaiah 49. For His own glory. Psalm 106 says much the same. He even raised up the wicked Pharaoh for His own glory, Romans 9. He restored Israel from exile for His glory, Ezekiel 36. Jesus sought only the glory of the Father, John 7. Jesus said, do good works for God's glory, Matthew 5. Jesus even said, God answers prayers so that He be glorified, John 14. Jesus endured the cross for the glory of God, John 12, John 17. God forgave sinners for His own glory. Isaiah 43, Psalm 25. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to give glory to God. John 16. And on and on it goes. Herod, it said, is judged for God's glory. In fact, all people are under God's judgment to bring glory to God. And Christ is coming again for God's glory. 2 Thessalonians 1. And we see in the Bible that even God's wrath is for His glory, Romans 9. And in the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, the glory of God replaces the need for a sun or a moon 
and we will bask in God's glory forever. Even your very salvation was done for God's glory. In fact, if you read the Scriptures, you will find that what salvation is at a divine level is God the Father giving a love gift to God the Son. And that gift is us, a people to worship Him and praise Him. And so we get caught up in this divine gift, as it were, from a father to a son. And it is all for the glory of God. Everything God does is for His name, His glory, His purposes. He is God. And our prayers need to take that focus. So let us pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You desired to reveal Yourself to us. Lord, we would have no way of knowing who You were. Are we, we are creatures of the dust and You are the God of the universe. We could only know about You if You initiated that and chose to reveal Yourself to us in Your Word. We could perhaps see Your power in creation, Lord God, but as Paul makes that perfectly clear, In Romans 1, with only natural revelation, we are left in our sins. We would do nothing. We would know nothing, rather, of Your saving nature, of Your mercy, of Your grace. Help us to root our prayers in Your Word which You so graciously gave us. May we learn from Daniel as we approach You in prayer. May we glean from his example that we come to You, Lord, sincerely, fervently, adoration, recognizing who You are, what You have done. That we come with minds full of Your truth and hearts full of worship and adoration in response to Your truth. May we see our own unworthiness before You. Lord, break us down. Reveal our sins to us that we may grow in grace. May we learn from Daniel the majesty of Your glory. In all our affairs, Lord, be glorified. In everything we do, make it not for us, not about us, but Lord, make it for You. Make it for Your church. Make it for Your name. To You alone be the glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.